our experiences, surroundings, and support systems shape our overall health and mental well-being. The numbers associated with mental illness are staggering, with an estimated 950 million people worldwide being affected. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, in any given year, approximately one in five or 20% of the adult population in the United States experiences a mental illness. We've witnessed a clear increase in stress, anxiety levels, and mental health disorders in recent years. Sadly, this crisis is further complicated by the lack of access to mental health services in many parts of the world and persistent stigma and discrimination towards those with mental illness. It is also crucial to understand that social drivers of health directly impact various aspects of our lives, including education, economic stability, social connections, neighborhoods, community infrastructure, and access to care. And by addressing these factors holistically, we can significantly impact one's mental health and well-being. The Healthcare Council of Chicago is proud to be part of conversations and developing solutions to address the mental health crisis, improve access to care throughout Chicago and the state of Illinois. Several organizations, community-based initiatives, and healthcare providers are working to expand mental health services, raise awareness, reduce stigma, and increase funding for mental health programs. In this two-part episode of the HC3 podcast, we have the privilege of talking to two remarkable individuals who are making significant contributions to the mental health field in Chicago and in Illinois as part of Mental Health Awareness Month. First up is Dave Gomel, president and CEO of of Rosecrans, a renowned behavioral health organization operating in the Midwest, serving more than 50,000 people each year at its facilities in Illinois, Iowa, and Wisconsin. With a passion for helping individuals and communities overcome mental health and substance abuse challenges, Dave brings compassion, empathy, and a strong commitment to improving the lives of others. His leadership has transformed Rosecrans and influenced the wider field of behavioral health in the Midwest. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillip. The presenting sponsor for the HC3 Podcast is Rosecrans. Rosecrans is a private, nonprofit organization and nationally recognized leader in treating mental health and substance use disorders for children, teens, young adults, adults, and families. With over 60 locations in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, their physician-led team has developed an innovative, multidisciplinary, outcomes-informed approach. Rosecrans's comprehensive continuum of care includes individual, group and family therapy, residential care for teens and adults with on-site detox services, intensive outpatient care and continuum care, family support and education, virtual outpatient services, alumni programming and parent support groups, and prevention and early intervention education for students and communities. Since 1916, their unmatched legacy as a proven behavioral health care leader is a source of hope and strength to those they serve. Rosecrans served more than 50,000 people last year. Dave, tell us all about Rosecrans. Uh, the mission vision of Rosecrans is to provide help, hope, and recovery uh, for individuals with behavioral health maladies, substance use, and mental health disorders. We believe everyone deserves the right to recovery, uh, regardless of ability to pay, uh, regardless of the stigma that exists in society. And our mission and vision is to continue to provide that uh, help and hope for all people at Rosecrans. So let's take kind of a step back. I'd just be interested in your narrative 
there was the behavioral health ecosystem and, you know, recovery treatment, all that stuff prior to the pandemic. And then that looked wildly different during the pandemic. And now we are, you know, today's, I think, the official day of the end of the public health emergency. So COVID is officially, quote unquote, over. Walk through kind of the differences between those three periods and kind of where we're sitting. What are what are the things that are making the work easier and better? And what are the things today that are making the work harder? The foundation of behavioral health services shifted uh, during the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. We've all heard the stories about how providers moved to virtual care, how the nursing impact and the therapist impact changed the way uh, care was delivered. That story is older. What is interesting to me now is to really look at the delivery of care uh, moving forward. And demand for residential services is different. Uh, those seeking uh, care are looking in alternate ways. People have become accustomed to the use of telehealth and there's been an explosion in the use of video and, and phone services for behavioral health therapy um, as we go forward. The emphasis and shift to crisis services uh, from the federal government, from the state uh, government and local municipalities, meeting people where they are is a tremendous shift in the delivery of care uh, for behavioral health services. Um, you know, the good things are that we are much more flexible. We, are, we can adapt in ways that we didn't understand before. And the one size fits all approach to treatment is, is very, very different. For companies like Rosecrans that have been around for 115 years, sometimes that adaptation is a little bit difficult. And we have to challenge our internal culture to be able to make these shifts quickly as care delivery changes. The pandemic did hurt in regards to the people experiencing and suffering from behavioral health disorders. We all know that alcohol use skyrocketed. We know that death by overdose has skyrocketed. Death by suicide has skyrocketed. Rates of anxiety and depression amongst all humans, but really with uh, kids, child, children, and adolescents has been uh, a significantly negative impact uh, due to this pandemic and, and the shutdown and everything that's associated with it. One of the challenges I know that was felt throughout the pandemic, particularly on the back end across the industry was were challenges related to workforce. And I know that that hit behavioral health particularly hard. Talk a little bit about that. And have you started to sense that is stabilizing at all or, or do we have a long way to go? I, you hit it on the head. Uh, the entire country, the entire world has a workforce issue. Unfortunately, behavioral health has been has hit some of the hardest. And you pull out the nursing issue, which I've read recently is improving at hospitals, and they kind of set the pace and the tone for the rest of healthcare. There's been a shortage of psychiatric care for a decade plus. So that uh, remains unchanged. It's the direct care workers, the licensed social workers and professional counselors, uh, the people who have been tending to their own emotive needs, who are burnt out, frankly, and don't want to attend to the other uh, people suffering that has been happening. And I hate to sound uh, 
like it's all about money, but the funding behavioral health is poor. And so people are able to move into other locations, other positions and make more money with not that same kind of burden that it, that it sometimes feels when you're taking on other people's uh, challenges. I agree. And I think that it's interesting to think about it with the juxtaposition of obviously the hiring of people, but then also the sustainability of your own staff. And if there's anything that you're doing internally to think about what it means to truly think about well-being and being supportive, the irony is you're providing behavioral health services, but also how do you take care of the people providing those services? And I think it's that caregiver issue that we see with nursing and other parts of the ecosystem as well. But I think it's especially hard it's a hard burden to carry when you're coming into work and you're taking on other people's problems and all of those challenges when we were all challenged over the past couple of years. So what are some of the steps and opportunities that, that Rosecrans has tapped into to think about that differently and evolve some of that narrative for your own staff? Rosecrans got lucky right before this big staffing uh exodus occurred, we made a a decision internally that we wanted to be paying our employees at a level that was 50th percentile by region, uh, by position. And remember, Rosecrans goes from Northwest Iowa, uh, South Dakota region, all the way through the Quad Cities, the entire Northern Illinois into Central Illinois, Madison, Wisconsin. And so we have a lot of different regions and a lot of different positions and types of services we provide, outpatient, inpatient, psychiatric, uh, straight substance use. So it's a pretty complex system. Uh, we made this determination that we we're gonna make this jump. And this was just prior to the variants beginning to hit our system and we thought we were okay. We, we thought the uh, pandemic was gonna be over a couple of years ago. And thank goodness we did because it put us in a position fiscally with our employees to de-incentivize them from leaving based on money. Um, and so you kind of take that uh, neutral position out. I did my entire dissertation on retaining behavioral health care workers. And every study you read says <laughs> removing pay as a variable, because pay may be the most important variable people look at first when they're looking at positions. So that put us on neutral ground and we're grateful for that decision. Perhaps the more important piece that we did was really kind of double down and make a decision that we want every employee to feel loved, valued, and cared for in whatever way that looked like. And that from their direct care supervisor through my position as CEO, that our mission as leadership were our employees and their well-being and their sustainability. And uh, if they felt supported and valued, then they're gonna be able to touch the 54,000 clients that we serve over three states um, every year. And so we put a number of initiatives into our leadership development to try to spur this uh, almost servant-like culture uh, amongst them for our employees. We brought in external speakers. We put in internal dialogue opportunities uh, to try to improve communication across the, the board. And our satisfaction rates skyrocketed. Some of the best satisfaction rates we've ever had at Rosecrans have been through the pandemic and the adjustments we've tried to make. So. You know, you invest in the people who do the work and everybody benefits from that. Most people, many people get into behavioral health because they have their own history. And I'm very open about my long history with mental health struggles and in and out of care. And so it gives me a perspective first and foremost to know that 
this is an illness like any other illness, but it's stigmatized differently. And I understand what it feels like to suffer and, and get help from a behavioral health malady. So that's an internal perspective. Number two is I started at Rosecrans, I was 22 years old, making minimum wage, uh, working all the undesirable shifts and have spent my entire career uh, with this organization, 30 years in varying levels and understand what it feels like to work the third shift, understand what it feels like to work with a client who doesn't know they need help nor necessarily want help, understand what it feels like to sit in front of an angry adolescent who's cursing you out and you're cursing your mom out and understanding that uh, young person is, is suffering and just needs love and help and support. And so I think those experiences, when the board made me CEO, first of all, I still keep wondering, are they sure it was me that they meant to put in there? It was over three years ago now, but uh, <laughs> they, they keep they keep doing my performance eval, so something's working. You keep getting a paycheck. I keep getting the paycheck with my own signature on it, which is really weird. <laughs> I've never had that uh, experience. Um, but what I really focus on is we could not have more serious work to do. Uh, at Rosecrans and in the behavioral health field. It is life and death work, literally. And so there is no room at all to take yourself seriously uh, when there is so much important work to be done. And if anybody in this field thinks they're above or beyond the mission, then they're probably in the wrong field. This isn't an ego-driven position. This is a position of just service and, and love and, and support. And as long as we maintain that philosophy, then I think people enjoy working in that kind of environment. It's becoming pretty well documented right now that we have an adolescent behavioral health crisis. So many things. I mean, one of the things I hate the, the most is like, well, one of the things the pandemic really shone a light on, you know, was this or that or the other thing. And the pandemic exacerbated some things, but it didn't create new dilemmas. And we've just been asleep at the switch, I think, as an industry and society on a lot of things, including adolescent behavioral health, which of course the pandemic did exacerbate. And today is in a really, really deleterious state. Tell me a little bit about the programs you guys are running Rosecrans. What are you observing as the state of adolescent behavioral health? And what more do you think the state or the city needs to be kind of consciously deliberately doing to take this on headlong? I believe you are correct in saying it's shown a bright light on an, an existing problem. And I do also believe that the pandemic exasperated the problem. I think you removed the natural support systems of kids uh, predominantly in the schools, which gave them a source of stability and, and regularity. And then you just missed key developmental stages. The Surgeon General just placed a study about the negative impact of isolation and loneliness and the physical impact on, on your heart. I heard an interview, he said, a broken heart is a, is a social construct and a physical construct, and it is very real. And that impacted uh, societies. So again, we adjusted our programming and as soon as schools went back in session, we just put more therapists into schools, realizing that people don't want to come out to a Rosecrans facility. They want Rosecrans to come to them. And then the use of telehealth has helped dramatically remove barriers for young people to gain access. Kids are resilient, right? We know that kids are resilient, but it doesn't mean there's been a fundamental deficit placed in there. 
And there, in some ways, there's almost a general malaise among society when we made this uh, adjustment, and you still see some of that today. And I think kids pick up on that, and they're trying to find their own footing amongst uh, their behavioral health uh, spectrum. Rosecrans is one of the, if not the largest, adolescent provider in the state of Illinois. And we run crisis services uh, all over the state. We have residential services for youth, mental health and substance use, and then countless outpatient groups. So it's a big piece of our history um, and our, our existence. And we continue that commitment for kids today. It's, you know, it's cliche to say they're our future, so I, I, I won't, but <laughs> we're relying on them, you know, to keep this thing going. And we've got to give them the foundation, the support uh, today where they go. Well, I might, I might frame the, they're our future in, in a less, slightly less cliche way and try to capture the sentiment, which is that the importance of breaking intergenerational patterns of anxiety, depression, addiction, isolationism, um, lack of education, social drivers that, that impact health. I don't know that there's been a more important moment in our country's history to be really taking this stuff seriously and, and not taking it seriously has profound societal and economic implications 20, 30 years from now. But as Americans, we don't tend to think that way, right? We, we tend to be very contemporaneous. We think about things in binary ideological terms. And if we are thinking about these things over a longer time horizon, we're doing it in a five to 10 year budget window. We're not thinking about what society will look like in 20 or 30 years. And I think at the moment that that can absolutely be to our detriment. So let's talk a little bit then about the financing of, of all of this stuff. Behavioral health. I mean, obviously, there's a long and storied history to behavioral health is always being kept separate and apart from physical health. It's paid in different ways. There's different systems and supports. And in recent years, the data and the science obviously are telling us more and more about the correlation between those two things. Things and that, you know, surprise, surprise, a person that's, that has a, a, a healthy functioning sense of self, a healthy functioning brain um, is going to have stronger physical attributes, stronger physical outcomes. But yet we still pay behavioral health providers poorly across the board. Is there is there anything happening in the industry that, that you think is changing that in the industry or vis-a-vis -vis government that's changing that? What do you think financing looks like for your space five years, 10 years from now? Is it better, is it worse, or is it different? There are so many variables to this question. Uh, let's go backward to social determinants of health. Let's go back to the intergenerational trauma, for lack of a better word. Let's go to the division of where my kids can go if they need behavioral health with a good income and a good uh, insurance plan versus someone who is less advantaged socioeconomically. Let's go deeper into race. Let's go into single parent households. I mean, there are so many factors that set the stage of how someone can access care first and foremost. I contend that the only way to have equity in provision of behavioral health services is to try to eliminate that barrier that exists from someone with means and someone without fiscal means to access care. That may be across most of healthcare, but it is more profound in behavioral health care, even the way behavioral health care is structured and set up. That's one factor. The second factor is stigma. You can't 
we cannot have this conversation without talking about the continual rampant stigmatization of behavioral health. And I'll try not to get on a soapbox for too long. And I know that when movie stars and people of prominence come out and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and, you know, we all celebrate that or I've had anxiety or depression and we all relate to that. That's fine from a social media standpoint, but when put the rubber to the road, it's still challenging. Rosecrans has a very positive brand recognition. Rosecrans provides some of the top care in behavioral health and our reputation precedes us. Uh, we're in expansion mode here in the city of Chicago, where we are today in our River North location. It's beautiful, high-end finishings, great clientele. Do you know that we've been turned down for leases in three locations in the city? The most liberal uh, city in America, perhaps, uh, still stigmatized because, well, we don't really serve behavioral health in our building as we try to lease places. And this is a clientele that we're providing here in the city that is uh, different than other providers. These are us, you know, people that have means and ability and good health care uh, coverage. These are the people that own the buildings, their partners, loved ones, uh, children that need help. And they still stigmatize a 120-year-old company that's never missed a, a rent payment of our 60 locations ever. Uh, because of the disease. And so you can't have the conversation about funding without having the conversation about stigma and that it's still okay in the back of someone's mind to say, we're going to underfund a behavioral health therapist because it's just addicts and crazy people, right? Junkies and crazy people. And so uh, we're, we can underfund that service line, which means that I can't pay our employees a gainful wage where they can advance themselves, where they can maybe change some of these intergenerational traumas and things holding them down from expanding their own well-being and worth and move this field to a new way. So we are today, you know, we've got 1,400 employees. We're sitting still very high, 10, 12% vacancy rate um, since this whole crisis has happened with waiting lists at every single program that we have in three states um, because we don't have enough employees and we can't recruit employees fast enough because we can't retain a wage to support where they need to go. It begins with reimbursement of Medicaid. It begins with uh, the states we operate making a commitment to serving the least of these because if we can pull individuals higher from the, as you call it, the intergenerational restraints that they have and get them the care they need for their behavioral health disorders, maladies, then they can go out and finish the education they need. They can go out and get the care that they need, get the jobs that they want to expand and go forward. I'm a great example of it because I came from a very impoverished life with mental health issues, was able to get care and I married a good partner, raised three beautiful kids who would never understand that trauma. I'm a white man. <laughs> uh, I was advantaged from the very beginning being a white man and getting care that others don't have access to. If we can't 
face these challenges head on, the uh, inequities that we have due to race and gender orientation. If we can't look these head on, then we're never gonna go forward. And if we can't break this stigma to have governmental entities fund this care at a break-even level, that we can pay our employees a gainful wage, then we're never going to break the system of trauma that we have. That's just the first step. And then you move into adequacy of provisions for those who actually have means and have commercial insurance. Here in Chicago, Illinois, if you're looking for a provider and you have insurance versus cash pay, you're waiting months to get care uh, in most places. So I, I, I told you I would soapbox and yet I did. Uh, but honestly, you're not paying me for this interview so I can really much appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I, you absolutely have go, a captive audience. Thank you, wherever we want to go. <laughs> I was at an event this morning where the CEO of the Medicaid Plans Association pointed out that reimbursement for Medicare is 60%. And the shortage that we have is of workers is about 40%. So there's that's what's missing right. when we go down to that Medicaid level is that difference between, and to be fair, you know, yes, there are Medicare patients that also we know that loneliness and isolation is in our aging adult population. But as we think about kids and the crisis that we've already mentioned here and families and especially mothers and the burden of, of COVID and managing many things, those are the types of people that need the most access to these services and don't have that wraparound support and, and don't have any means of paying for it. Like you said, if, if it's not out of pocket, then then you just, you choose not to. It's the same as choosing to pay for groceries or choosing to pay for your medicine. And most people bucket behavioral health and mental health into the, of my medical expenses, this one's less important because of what you physically feel and what you mentally feel. Even though in my mind, I think that it's just as equal. And I think we're starting to discover and see more opportunity to really understand that the long-term ripple effect of the investment, the lack of investment into behavioral health and mental health services is a detriment just as much as it is physical. That's well said, Megan. Um, it, it is difficult work, behavioral health. It's difficult work. And when you move into community mental health and people who are seriously and persistently chronically mentally ill and some of the challenges that they have um, it is uh, challenging to work with the individuals. If you look at any of the dozens of counties that Rosecrans serves, you look in their jails and you'll find 70 to 80% of the people incarcerated have a behavioral health condition. When you look at the homeless issues in most cities that we uh, provide service, you know that the vast majority have a chronic uh, behavioral health condition. When you look at the problems that we're having here in the city of Chicago with downtown and all the things that are making all the headlines, uh, sensationalism and the headlines, those, those kids, uh, now not all of them have behavioral health issues, but there are systemic challenges that these kids are facing that uh, we need to put into place. All of this ties back to behavioral health. And if you can't help the most vulnerable people, uh, then as a society, we're never going to advance. 
And states have an obligation to care for the least of these within their states. That's part of the separation of uh, federal and states and our constitution to provide that care and to do so in an adequate manner. And it comes down to pay often when you're doing these uh, challenging work. Now, I do want to shout out without being overly uh, demonstrative. Uh, we operate in many states and Illinois is uh, more progressive than other states in regards to rates. We had a nice rate increase for some specific mental health services for Medicaid specifically I'm talking about. There are bills uh, in front of legislature as we speak to advance further uh, care um, and payment and reimbursement. But man, when you're doing hard jobs and you're not getting paid well, it's real easy to leave that job and find something mm -hmm. that is less burdensome and uh, economically more satisfying. Dave, if you could wave a magic wand and that wand would be a catalyst for the state, Governor Pritzker, or the, or the assembly to do something a bit different, and Mayor Johnson, maybe. So it's two kind of separate questions, two, two magic wands, two separate questions. What would you be encouraging the state to prioritize? What would you be encouraging the city to prioritize in this moment? How many wishes do I get with the wand? You get one each. I, you know, that's tough. I do believe that the Pritzker administration cares deeply about this issue of behavioral health. I, I believe that in my heart. And, and I believe Mayor-elect Johnson shares that sentiment. It is a big, expensive problem. And it is a very complicated problem when you start adding things like pension and pension reform and uh, other factors, other expenses that exist. This is self-serving, I understand, but I believe in my heart, regardless of my field, that it all begins with the health of our communities. And if you don't have strong emotional uh, health, behavioral health, then you can't have anything else. You can't have housing. You can't have parenting skills. You can't have um, wealth creation. Wealth creation if you're not mentally healthy. And so I, my magic wand would be to be uber focused for uh, both the mayor and the governor on this behavioral health issue and find ways to pay for adequate care. Um, for those least served we're talking about right now, for those that are funded through Medicaid, socioeconomically disadvantaged for a million reasons and who are trying to get out of that cycle, uh, to move forward. Um, you know, I hear some say, well, these people should just go out and get jobs. Well, it's the, when you are chronically depressed or addicted to a substance, it's not so easy to hold a job. And so if we can remedy that depression or that substance use disorder, then we can move people into gainful employment and then they could get off the, the state books as they go forward. But we've got to make that investment uh, somewhere and it has to be a priority um, it can't be a cuttable budget item. It can't be. It has to be the necessity, uh, a primary focus in our budgets. That's really well said. Um, I know we're at time. What, are, what other questions do you have? I mean, you pointed out a little bit earlier about this stigma, even just within location and specifically your Lakeview location is where you also have recovery services where people can stay for an extended period of time. And there was pushback when you tried to 
bring that to the neighborhood because of what that stigma brings. And I and and we know that there's a crisis, so there, there's a lot to unpack with just substance abuse. But as you think about space and place and creating the environments for for recovery, and then the crisis at hand, and what types of things you guys are doing to innovate and address those needs. When Megan says pushback, she means it almost killed me uh, going through the NIMBYism. And and it's not that I don't get why people are concerned when they hear a a drug treatment center is coming into their neighborhood, when they've invested a great deal for their families and their income in the homes that they own in in that area. Um, And I would understand if this was an unlicensed provider or a a provider that doesn't have long history you know, Haymarket is dealing with the same thing in the suburbs right now, trying to open their own center. It's it's an unwarranted fear. I can tell you eight, 10 years later, we have served thousands of young people at that Lakeview location and have had two complaints over those 10 years of someone smoking in front of our building. Mind you, we're four blocks from Wrigley Fields, uh, and I'm not sure if these are our clients or not who are smoking, but two issues there. Uh, meanwhile, have touched thousands of lives. I was stopped by a gentleman on the street who said, are you from Rosecrans? And I said, yeah. And this, this guy broke down, telling me the story about how his son had been through seven treatment programs, was addicted to heroin, and was going to die. And this gentleman is weeping in front of me saying how that program at Lakeview saved his son's life, who finished college, got a job, is in a good relationship, contributing back to society for finally getting care that uh, they need. So it's not that I don't get uh, the nimbyism, but it is uh, often unwarranted once you do the, the work. And I can attest for the Lakeview neighborhood, we are a benefit. We filled immediately, our outpatient clinic filled immediately with neighbors that live in that uh, region who are moving into recovery. And the 30-bed uh, residential home, which is full most of the time, has touched so many lives along the way. If you can't tell, the stigma is something passionate uh, for me because I know if we all know that 40 to 60% of us suffer from some level of behavioral health disorder, all of us, right? And I will venture to guess 80 to 100% of us, it touches us immediately with a loved one or a colleague. And to remove that stigma and understand that behavioral health is just an illness uh, like any other illness um, and treatment is required to get better and when we continue to put barriers in front of that treatment we will continue to put barriers in the growth of our city county region state country the hc3 podcast is a production of third horizon strategies Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.